Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Parenting by Heart, looking at principles that we have found helpful in the first 10 years of parenting. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. Welcome to Parenting by Heart, the first session. Why don't we open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we greet you tonight as the perfect parent and ask you to help us as we talk about things that are so important to us and to you and to the world we live in. Guide us and pour out your Father's heart toward us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to read this poem to you. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray my sanity to keep. For if some peace I do not find, I'm pretty sure I'll lose my mind. I pray I find a little quiet, far from the daily family riot. May I lie back, not have to think about what they're stuffing down the sink. <laughs> or who they're with, or where they're at, and what they're doing to the cat. I pray for time, all to myself, did something just fall off a shelf? To cuddle in my nice soft bed, oh no, another goldfish dead. Some silent moments, for goodness sake, did I just hear a window break? And that I need not cook or clean, well, heck, I've got the right to dream. Yes, now I lay me down to sleep. I, I pray my wits about me keep. But as I look around, I know I must have lost them long ago. <laughs> If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, while you turn there, uh, one time I asked my father what's the hardest thing he ever went through in his life. I've mentioned this in a sermon one time. He was in World War II and the Korean War, serving in the Navy on ships, and he saw kamikaze fighters. And so I was just sort of fishing. I was around 25, fishing for some good dad story, you know, and and he thought a minute, and he said, well, I guess it was you. <laughs> and it uh, kind of came out of left field. I really was not uh, thinking that I was going to be the answer to that question, what was the hardest thing he... And I'm not an only child. There are, I do have a brother and a sister. <laughs> but I apparently took the cake there. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's just going to set the tone for uh, the things we want to talk about today because we're really not interested in just hearing some more opinions from somebody, but we'd really like to find out what does God think about all this issue of parenting. And our title this time is Parenting by Heart. It's frankly the title of a video series that we're probably not going to use much of, but it was a good title, so we're going to keep the title. I just want to mention here at the beginning that I realize that one size doesn't fit all and it's kind of a scary thing talking on parenting because nothing works 100%. There are exceptions to every rule and every uh, family culture is unique, every child is unique, and there are different situations that it's, you, it's hard to take everything into account. So it's a little bit frightening to try and uh, give general prescription. It would be like, oh yeah, uh, let's just say you're all sick and I'm a doctor. And I'm supposed to get up here and tell you how to be better. Well, it kind of depends on what you're sick with, doesn't it? You know, I say, well, I want you all to take this. Well, that would help some of you and kill some others 
and for the most of you it wouldn't do any good. So, but we will try to show, tell you things that, that uh, have helped us, have helped others, and at least it's something to, to try. I'd just like to encourage you to keep learning, keep growing, and uh, the fact that you'd even come is a good sign because it's in the multitude of, of, uh, of ideas, testimonies, examples that you, you, you get enough to work with, try things, and um, just keep learning. St. Augustine said, give me other parents and I will give you a different world. The biggest challenge we found in parenting is not the child, it's the parents. And my aunt worked for 40 years as a professional psychologist uh, with troubled children. I was one of them. <laughs> I was her nephew. I lived next door, so I got it for free. But um, <laughs> since my parents were desperate, uh, she helped. And at the end of her life, she prayed to receive Christ about two or three months before she died. And I was sitting with her, and she said, I wonder if my life has been a failure. And she was, a, she was wonderful in working with children. She would always have a great success in working with the children. I remember her telling me one time she had these two little boys that would not stop yelling. I mean, they, they arrived yelling, and the whole time the parents were there, they were yelling. And then the parents left, and they were yelling. You know, it was about a two- and a three-year-old. And so my aunt and her African-American maid, they just took them into the bathroom, filled up the bathtub with bubble bath, and plopped these two little boys in it. And they're still yelling, screaming at the top of their lungs. And my aunt and her maid would come in, and the boys would yell, and my aunt would yell, and the black maid would yell, and they'd run out. And the boys thought that was great. And they'd laugh, so they'd come back in and yell, and say, but calmed them down. But just to say that she was wonderful in working with children. But at the end of her life, she said, I was always able to help the children. But if the parents wouldn't change, the child always reverted to how they were before. And parents that spend a lot of money taking their child to a specialist just want the specialist to fix the child. It's harder to find the parents that are humble enough to say, well, maybe there's something that I need to do differently and something I need to change in. So um, and I'd like to encourage you to receive this for yourself and be open, Lord, first change me. And it will provoke a change in your child. I wanted to mention, uh, I bought something as an illustration. It's a complete step-by-step -step cookbook from Better Homes and Gardens. It's an interesting wrinkle on American culture that we love cookbooks. We love how-to books. One thing that struck us in Argentina was that if you go into any Argentine's kitchen, you pretty much never will find a cookbook. And we thought, well, how do they cook? Um, I have a feeling all through Africa they don't use cookbooks. In America, you don't even question it. My mother must have 40, 50 cookbooks. And I love just peering through them myself, you know, thinking about what I'm going to cook. I just cooked London broil the other day. And so I went on the Internet, you know, and I got, I got eight different recipes down off the Internet and then invented one of my own using that as a guide. It didn't turn out very well. But, um, <laughs> but we like a recipe a method that works. And then do this, this, this. Sometimes when people would ask Wendy, well, how did you cook this? Because it was so delicious. And then she'd say, well, I, I, don't, I don't have it written down or, or something like that. And they'd say, well, just tell me about what's in it. And they would try to do it just from that. Of course, American recipes are very exact. 
It's a half a cup of this. It's not a cup. And it's a real cup. It's not just any whole old thing that you drink tea out of. It's a specific measure. Uh, Americans are, uh, tend to be cookbook in, in the way and recipe oriented in everything. And the way they do their car, their job, their house, their cleaning, their cooking, and also their parenting. And so there are times when, when you come together to talk about parenting and people just want the formula. What is it? You know, put your left foot here, put your right foot here, then Johnny will be wonderful and easy and you'll have, be proud and compliments will come rushing in and they'll score high on the SAT and everything just because you did this little method. And I wanted to mention tonight that I think one of the main things I've learned about parenting is that it's not wrapped up in, in recipes, in techniques, but it's wrapped up in the nature of who God is. It's not so much in rules, but in a relationship. It's not a pattern, it's a person. It's an outflow of the nature of God. And if you understand better who God is and how He is, and also the nature of man and the nature of sin, it gets you beyond just a method. Because any method, again, one size doesn't fit all. So that's, you know, if you start with just methodology, it's going to be a very frustrating Try this, try that, try the other. But if you have one particular uh, specific idea coming from the Lord that you're deriving it down from, you have a, uh, something to go back to, to think, well, what would be another way of expressing the same thing that I see in God? I'm going to explain that more in a minute. But someone once said, God loves like a father and he comforts like a mother. God made man in his own image, male and female. He made humans. And he is our perfect model. Now, God compares himself to a number of different analogies in the Bible. The four main ones are shepherd, king, husband, and father. But the one he puts the greatest emphasis on is the image of being a father. That's why I said when, uh, when he taught them to pray, pray then in this way, not our shepherd, our king, or our husband, but our father. So this is something that's in his heart. The key to parenting is not primarily in the hand, in the skill, the technique, the know-how, the recipe, but it's in the heart. And as we understand better how does God parent us, we'll have a better guide for how can we be better parents for our children. So I want to look at a number of examples of things that you know, but sometimes you know these things about God, but you haven't thought through, well, what does that say about the way I should be a mother or a father. The first thing that we see in God as a father is the area of grace. If you'd like to look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It would be interesting to go around and ask everyone, because this is a very popular topic. Everyone's talking about grace. Uh, we used to just talk about it when it was time to say it at the beginning of the meal. But nowadays it's a real common topic but what does uh, grace mean? In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And grace is God's unconditional love. That's one of the, one of the things that's very interesting with parenting and, and why sometimes you, some of the things, um, parenting courses we've heard, that are strong on methodology and strong on getting the child to conform quickly so that you can live a more peaceful life. 
it's like there's something missing there. Uh, it's not so much that there's a wrong technique, but it's like almost like there's some attitude or spirit that's not right. Because you communicate beyond just your words, just your actions. There's something in you that communicates deeply to your child. Uh, rejection or a workspace thing. If you behave, then mom will love you. If you get good grades, then dad will be happy he's your dad. I was listening to Josh McDowell. By the way, this is a good book for those of you that have kids eight years and up. We'll be focusing mostly on the first 10 years, although it will have repercussions later on. But this book by Josh McDowell, if you want to jot it down, is just wonderful. The Disconnected Generation. It just came out two or three years ago. The Disconnected Generation by Josh McDowell. He said his daughter got in the car from high school and asked the question, Dad, what do you think about this? She names this Christian leader. And he said, well, why do you ask? And he said, well, we just spent an hour in class talking about how he fell into sin with his the secretary. Mr. McDowell said um, he kind of felt, as she was asking this, that that really wasn't what her real question was, that behind that question was another question. And so he said, you know, with me teaching on abstinence and sexual purity and everything, it would be pretty difficult if you ever got pregnant, wouldn't it? And she said, uh, yeah, I've thought about that. And uh, he said, well, I just want you to know that if you ever do get pregnant, that it will be hard, but we'll get through it, and you're a whole lot more important to me than my reputation. That's grace. What are you communicating to your child? Now, see, we've already received this from God. The thing is to figure out, well, how do I do the same thing with my child that God does with me? Giving your child the gift of yourself. Now, grace does not mean permissiveness. It doesn't mean that anything goes. Grace is an interesting balance between love and justice, between softness and firmness. An illustration of that is the chair you're sitting on right now. There is a combination of strong, firm, hard elements of the steel, and then there's that nice, soft, cushy thing that keeps you from having to feel the steel. There is a balance and an interplay and a teamwork between the firmness and the softness in that chair so that you're comfortable, but you're not having to sit on the floor. If the whole thing was made out of foam, you'd be on the floor. If the whole thing was made out of steel, you would be hoping I was about to be finished tonight. Be uncomfortable. And so grace is, is just a term for somehow God's magical uniting of the softness and the firmness that are in his love and justice. And we're going to get into a lot more specifics tonight. It sounds like generalities. Trust me, we will get very, very specific on how do you carry that out. But uh, I want to start off still with the principles. Michael Jackson appeared at Oxford. Uh, you probably heard about this or read it, but he said, I wanted a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. That's one of the things he said. The only thing I ever really wanted was a father who loved me. What would your child say someday? What would it take, if you asked your child, what would it take for your mom and dad to, to love you? What would they say? Would they say nothing? Or would they say, well, for me, I have to behave, or I have to get good grades, or are there are things I shouldn't do? 
How do you communicate unconditional love to your children? Now, one last thing on grace, communicating grace to, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this is the story of the prodigal son. And it's a good example of grace. Of course, the son asks for his inheritance and leaves. And then he's having a miserable time. You don't know if the father knows, but being a wealthy man, uh, he was probably able to get some information about the whereabouts and wherewithal of his son. And so he probably knew that the son was having a hard time. So in that sense, we see the firmness that the dad didn't go and rescue him. We also see the dad's firmness in that the son had already spent half of the family's goods. You know, he'd given him his inheritance early, which so whatever that was, that was half of what the family owned. So when the son came back, the dad didn't say, well, let's let bygones be bygones. All that we have now, we'll still give you half of that. He had still lost his inheritance, and it never says anything about the dad figuring out a way to get him a new inheritance. So on the one hand, we see the firmness. But on the other hand, even though the son has done everything that the father probably could have predicted, Dads are real great in prophecy sometimes, you know. Now, if you do this, this is going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. This child is sure it won't happen, but the dad knows it will because he already did it. And not sure enough. <laughs> chip off the old block. So the son does it and comes back, and, of course, right there on your lips is, I told you so. But we see the son, let's see, he says, uh, Luke 15, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and he gets this little speech rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he gets up, goes back. The dad sees him and runs out to him, hugs, throws his arms around him, kisses him. Verse 21, the son gets into his, he says, wait, dad, I got something to say. You know, he backs up and he gets his little, I don't know if he had a little cheat sheet out, you know, his little paper, you know, that he's, this whole speech he's going to give, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best rope. It's like the dad's not even listening. He's just so glad. You know, too often we are wanting so much for that son to say what they're supposed to say. And we see here the father's just overflowing with, I'm just glad you're back. He says, yeah, you, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, hey, bring the, bring the fatted calf. Yeah, I, I really just should be your servant. Right, right, right. Let's get, get out a robe over there. And we just see it just overwhelming that child. That is a picture of the grace of God. And I believe Jesus told that parable because that's how God has been with you and with me and wants us to be that way with our children. We'll get into more details on how to do that, but uh, let's move on. A second thing we see in God that we want to manifest with our children is in the area of reconciliation. Reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5:19, that says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So often in disciplinary issues, because we use the word punishment, uh, and because normally in most disciplinary issues, we've been offended. They've either messed something up, broken something, hit somebody, but there's been some offense, and in some way, 
uh, you're offended or justice has been offended or something, but so often at that point, a spirit of punishment or vengeance, even if you're really, really, really mad, and that happens sometimes, and that is a spirit of retribution. What we see with God is, is that his spirit is, with his children is never one of retribution. What, what is the true punishment for sin? Hell forever. Okay? So when it, the Bible says that God disciplines his children, it, it, in a sense it's not saying he punishes them for their sins. Jesus has already taken their sins on the cross. The true punishment for their sins would be to send them to hell forever. And he doesn't do that. And in the same way, when we deal with our, our child's disobedience... It makes a huge difference if we can switch in our thinking to thinking, well, you're going to get it now. You're, you're going to pay for this. And we begin to get them ready, you know, and they, they begin to brace, you know. The, they've got a debt, and they're going to pay their debt to society. If you switch from, because God's not like that with his children, if you can switch to thinking what has happened here is sin has broken fellowship. And you can feel that distance. And the process of, of discipline, the purpose of it is not that they would pay, but that they would be restored to fellowship. One of the ways we could tell that a disciplinary issue was finished in our home was when our child was smiling again. Because the point of the discipline is not that they pay for their sin, but that they be restored to fellowship. We're going to go over that a lot of times and also talk in detail about but how do you do that. Time does not heal. There are parents that don't want to do any kind of physical discipline, so they'll do an emotional discipline. Now, I'm not as familiar with what's going on in North American culture. I've just been with Latin Americans, and they're real, you know, Italian, expressive. And, um, and so they'd get mad and wouldn't talk to them for six hours or something. You know, the child's just two years old. After 15 minutes, they forgot what it was they did. <laughs> and all they know is that mom is in a huff. Six hours. Some a day or two. Maybe it was just an excuse. They didn't want to talk to him at all anyway, so it was just an excuse. But, but time does not heal. These things need to be dealt with in a way that brings healing, that brings restoration in that brokenness. We won't look at it now, but in, a, in the first chapter of Ephesians, he sets the stage for uh, talking about the Christian life. And the very first part of, of Ephesians talks about how God went an infinite distance and paid an infinite price to be reconciled with us, his enemies. He's a God of reconciliation. And if we can manifest that in the way we parent, we will uh, really, really minister to our child. But not only that, if you parent the way God parents, you already prepare the way for your child to know God someday. Because frankly, in the first five years or so, they say, the child can't make a huge distinction between you and God. Uh, understanding of who God is and how he is is very much conditioned by how mom and dad treat him. And that's a big burden, isn't it? You're, you're either forming or warping his theology to the degree you do it like God or you do it like the devil. Let's change the subject. Third... A uh, third thing we see in God that we'd like to manifest in our parenting is that he sets a good example. He sets a good example. Does God ever have a bad day? Do you ever hear him storming around up there kicking things? And In John 13, 15, 
John 13, 15, Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have set you an example. Jesus was a good example. With our mouths we speak, but with our lives we shout. And God's main method of communication is not ink on a page or nouns and verbs. It's flesh and bones. And that is why to see a great change in your child, you need to ask God to do it, make a great change in you. Because to some degree, what you're seeing right now with your children is a reflection of you and also how you're doing it. Now, that may not be very encouraging, but it does mean that if you can change, your child also will change. Are you submissive? Are you respectful? Are you neat? Straighten your room. You know, they don't say anything, but your room <laughs> doesn't look that neat. I'm talking to myself too. <laughs> you want that child to be self-controlled? Are you self-controlled? To set a good example. And anything that you're seeing in your child, that you, you know this should not be this way, the very first question is, is there anything in my life like that that may somehow be contributing? My child does it in a more childish way. But is there something in me of pride, arrogance, selfishness that needs to change. Maybe I don't slap the person next to me. Maybe I find other ways of going about it. But uh, Lord, help me to be a better example. Fourth, another area we see in, in, in the way God parents us that flows down to us, that we want to flow down to our children, is in unity. Unity. Luke eleven seventeen. Luke 11:17 Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. How does God show unity? Have you ever heard the Trinity argue? The Holy Spirit says, "Well, I God says, "What what are they doing?" Well, the Holy Spirit says, "Well, I let them to do this. I, I can't believe you did that. I just told them the other day to do this." It's a common thing in families. For mom to say something, and the dad is in the living room, and the child goes into the living room to see, it's a lobbying effort to see if maybe we can uh, get a favorable outcome with dad. Sometimes uh, one of the parents is being uh, firm, and so the other one sort of comes to the defense, the rescue of this poor mistreated child. And the child is very observant, notice, picks up on this right away, aha. And they also know, obviously, which side uh, is to the, more to their liking. And so they will be over that. Now, some parents even, because of insecurities they have, they're trying to win a higher place in the affections of the child than the other parent. It's sort of like a, a match to see who can get them to love you more. But I'm sure that would never happen here. But, but that's one of the goals that we should have also as parents, Whoever's involved in the parenting of a child, I mean, someone might be a single parent, but there might be a grandparent involved or something like that. And in general, you're talking about the husband and wife, but uh, to the degree you can, everybody that's involved in the life of that child, family-wise, or, or more than just like a, an occasional babysitter, you'd like them to have pretty much the same concepts 
so that the child has a firm ground on which to stand. Otherwise, the child's energy doesn't go into understanding what is expected of them and help and getting themselves to do it. They're spending more energy into figuring out the loopholes in the system, the cracks between the authority figures. And uh, if, the, if the parents can speak as one, now uh, a little illustration of this, uh, because you're never going to be fully in agreement. So part of your agreement is that in front of the children you will try never to disagree. There were moments when, have you ever noticed how the anger level kind of peaks? It kind of it hits the little, like on a recording thing, it kind of goes to the red buttons, you know? And usually that's, it's not two hours, uh, it's usually not even 10 minutes. It's usually not even 60 seconds. But there's a 60 second period in there where it's really, really high and hot. So I remember one day when I was, it was high and it was hot, and I had I snatched up one of my children and was heading off to take care of that. And uh, Wendy, I can't remember what it was, uh, but she knew that either I had the wrong child <laughs> or that my level of uh, excitement on it was way over the level of the offense. And so we had this system worked out where she wouldn't say anything, but as I'm marching by with the child, bright shade of red, uh, she, uh, in Argentina, they have a, something, they do like this. They put their finger right under their eye and they go like that, where you kind of points to their eye, and that means that's their way of saying with sign language, watch out. So as I'm going by, she goes, watch out. <laughs> and it was just enough to, in the few remaining feet to the bedroom to catch myself and realize, hey, calm down, so that by the time I actually sat down with whoever it was, and I had gotten out of the red zone and was able to deal with it appropriately. So that was a situation where we weren't in agreement, but we were in unity. And where she, but you see, we both, we both have to participate in that. She has to uh, discipline herself not to say it out loud in front of the child. I have to discipline myself to respond with such a small tip-off. The commitment to unity. And also, it's not just in disciplinary issues, but the commitment to unity. Uh, the, one of the best gifts you can ever give to your child is to uh, love your spouse. And play a physical affection before your children. I always remember my father holding my mother there in the kitchen and looking over at us and saying, I hope you, you boys get a, a wife as fine as I've gotten and all these kind of things. To praise your wife in front of the children. Mothers to respect the dad. Dads to open the doors, pull out the chair for your wife, all of these things that uh, <laughs> when I, and, and every family has their own subculture about the way you show respect, things you receive from your parents but, or, have, or have learned. It's not so much any one of the specifics, but it's what you're communicating of unity and a firm foundation for that child. And that is a reflection of how God is. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, and always never a house divided against itself. A word to a single parent is just the word bravo. I'm so delighted that uh, your child is not an orphan. And uh, the parent of a, uh, um, a single parent of a child is all that stands between that child and being an orphan. It's because that parent was brave enough to stick around and to show up and uh, to take on the very difficult role of trying to be two people when you're just one person. 
they say that even orphans, I think uh, Winston Churchill was an orphan, but there are, there are many famous people that uh, went on to do great things even being orphans. And uh, your child, because of you, or your children, because of you as a single parent, is much better off than those orphans. And uh, the Bible has a special place, the Lord has a special place for what the, the biblical term, the widows and the orphans, the, the woman that ended up single, even though she was married, and widows normally means the husband died, but also in, in terms of a divorce situation, and the orphans, those that are the fatherless. He is a father to the fatherless. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, we see kind of a parallel continuing on with the thing on single parents where Paul said, God allowed a thorn in the flesh and he, I asked him three times to take it away and he wouldn't. And God said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. As a single parent, nothing can take away the feeling of weakness, of inadequacy, it's trying to cover a six-foot person with a three-foot blanket, and it's never enough. Uh, but to realize that the Lord has said, uh, in, in allowing that situation, my grace will be sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in the weakness you feel. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. A fifth area that we see in God that we can learn to develop is the area of discipline. God is a God of discipline. 2 Samuel 7.14 2 Samuel 7.14 God is talking to David about his son Solomon who would be, was going to be king. And he said, I will be, this is God talking, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. The idea of correction with a, a physical instrument is something that's in the Bible. We'll talk more about that. But it's something that we see the, that, that God disciplines his children. Now, the way he... I remember telling Walt this when Walt was just uh, one and a half, you know, and I think we called the spanking back then a, a pow-pow or something like that. And I was explaining to him that also that if I was disobedient to, to my Heavenly Father, that he would also discipline me. And he looked at me incredulously and he says, Jesus gives pow-pows as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it usually hurts longer than a, a little switch might hurt, but uh, Jesus gives pow-pows. But the idea of discipline again, understanding that God is a God of reconciliation, the purpose of any kind of discipline, whether it's time out or, or, or physical discipline, is not to, for them to pay for their crimes. It's to restore a broken fellowship. And there are ways to do that so that it, it reaches those ends. But some people say, well, we should just discipline by talking to them. The problem is there are times when your child is under the influence of their waywardness and words won't stop them. I mean, you've been talking to them. So now you raise the level. You know, you were talking to them like this, Johnny. And, well, Johnny's still going strong, and so now you're talking to him like this. And it gets louder and shriller and maybe even into verbal abuse. There are probably many of you right now that can remember something that your dad said to you or your mom said to you years ago and it still hurts and they maybe have even said I'm so sorry and maybe not but words go and injure the soul 
And so we want a way of disciplining our children where we stay a bit calmer and we're more careful with the things that we sow in their soul through the words that we say. You're never going to... Why? You know, all of these things that just kind of pour out, maybe some of the things your mom or dad said to you, in your moment of weakness and being over the top, you may find yourself saying and causing this, passing on the same damage that was done unintentionally. I mean, all, almost all parents are very well-intentioned. But nevertheless, if you do the wrong thing, you still get unfortunate results. Proverbs 12:18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Hebrews 12.10, uh, he disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us. And we want to learn, well, how, does, how and why does God discipline us? And then apply that with how we discipline our children. I've got here a couple of articles on physical discipline. Pediatricians urge nationwide ban on spanking in schools. Spanking, the great debate, 1998, Los Angeles, to spank or not to spank. For many parents, that question can be Tough to answer. A study, spanking kids leads to long-term bad behavior. And then in 2001, how about this one? University of California at Berkeley. <laughs> Listen to this, this is good. Occasional mild spankings of young children are okay. Can you believe that, 2001? And do not cause any lasting harm that carries into adolescence according to a study released Friday. That's why I got that one on top. The study found the majority of families disciplined their preschool children by using mild to moderate spanking. The results showed no negative effects on cognitive, social, or behavioral skills of those youngsters and found no difference between them and the 4% of children, 4%, who were not physically disciplined. The lady who did the study, Owens, herself an expectant mother, see, she's not even a mother, <laughs> said she is not advocating spanking, and I don't plan to use it, she says. I brought something from my kitchen. This is a knife for those of you on tape. And my question is, no, I'm not saying use this for discipline. <laughs> my question is, is this good or bad? It depends on who has it in their hand. And you wouldn't want to see that in your two-year-old's hand. What if we said, well, but because people get hurt with these, because there are muggings in New York, no house should have a knife in it because someone might get cut. We have learned in our lives with things like knives, with things like fire and electricity that there is a right use and a wrong use. And if we began to try to remove from life everything that could possibly be misused, we would just be living in a tent somewhere eating with our hands. It's because in all these other areas we've been able to discern the good from the bad, the right use from the wrong use, that we live at peace and everything goes fine. Can you imagine a doctor trying to operate and they won't let him have knives anymore because of muggers in New York? So he's got to try and rip it apart with his fingernails. I mean, come on. We want him to use a knife, a sharp knife, and use it the right way. And in the same way with physical discipline, we want to talk to you about what's the, how do you keep it from being a mugging? How do you make it a surgical operation so that it accomplishes exactly what the Lord wants, leaves no trace of any problem? I asked my, one of my children today, do you remember any time 
that I spanked you. Can you remember a situation or any time where you felt like it was inappropriate? And she said, no, I can't think of any time. You want it so that if it's done right, it doesn't leave a trace except for the good fruit that it bears in terms of their changed behavior. I better move on. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, last area that we see in God, there are many others, but um, is his attention. How much attention he pays us. Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. God is all the time thinking about you. Got all these thoughts about you. His eye is on you. And in the same way, we want to learn to communicate that to our children. I'm thinking about you. I'm interested in you. When my little child would come in, I'd be right in the middle. I get real deep in thinking and marking, and they're all the time used to be coming in. Not anymore. They're all the time going out now. But a little two-year-old would appear at the side, you know, of my desk. And, and because I was learning these things, I'd, I'd consciously pull out and pull away and turn it with my body language, communicate, Child, I am thinking about you. What do you want to tell me? And usually in 15 seconds, they were done. It's not as though they wanted to stick around. But I would concentrate on, I'd give them my, my, not just a glance, I'd turn, look at them in the eyes, and say, what can I do for you? But that attention, try to model the kind of attention God gives you to your child. In listening, they say that a child asks something like 500,000 questions by the age of 15. And asked them all of you, didn't he? As far as time together, uh, uh, a dad had promised to go to take his children to the circus. And uh, right on the day they were supposed to go, he gets a call. And, um, and he, there's some really important thing that came up at work. And the kids were sure they weren't going to get to go to the circus. And he says, well, you're just going to have to figure it out without me. He put the phone down. And as they're going out to the circus, the mom said, uh, you know, the circus comes around every year. And he said, yeah, but childhood doesn't. So we want to talk in the next few weeks about parenting by heart. But I want you to know that God has hope for you. If you're struggling as a parent, as a single parent, as a mom, as a dad, if you say, well, Henry, you just don't know my situation, but I know your God, and he's the God of the resurrection, and he's the God of hope, and God's specialty is imperfect, broken situations. So let's trust that in the next weeks we'll learn more about him and receive his help in being more like him to our children. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. What a great dad you are. And we can climb up into your lap anytime. The tough points have been our failings, not yours. And Lord, we'll never do it just like you. But uh, we can grow and learn and therefore honor and glorify you more. Help us, Lord. We call out to you. Bless these parents. Pray for you to guide them in listening to these things and trying things and writing good questions. And give us a great number of weeks together. In Jesus' name, amen. joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. 
We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.